Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Tuesday, May 5th, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. For this consumer goods-focused episode, we're actually blasting off into outer space to cover one of the newer but rapidly expanding industries that, in my opinion, has the potential to disrupt what it means to be a consumer discretionary company. Joining me today to break down the ins and outs of investing in the global space economy is Andrew Channon, the co-founder and CEO of Procure AM, the issuer behind the world's first pure play space ETF, trading under ticker UFO. Andrew, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. And I, I should clarify for our listeners that we're actually recording this on to the 28th, but it's going to be releasing on, on May 5th. And I, I hope that it'll be just as relevant a week from now as it is today. But I am personally really excited about the opportunity for space. It was part of the reason why I was so excited to have you on today. So I'd love to know just a little bit about yourself. What made you and your company interested in the opportunities for, as a quote, space? So I had the fortune of right out of university actually getting uh, a job with one of the largest ETF specialist trading firms on the floor of the American Stock Exchange back in 2007. And it provided me with a tremendous experience starting off with the trading and market making of exchange traded products, predominantly in the global equity and international equity world. And it led me down a path where I've um, created uh, several ETF companies. And most recently, with um, ETF industry veteran and legend Bob Tull, we created a company called Procure AM. And everyone for is always asking me anytime I create a, a new ETF, what's next? What's next? And for me, this was an idea that I was very excited about um, creating a publicly traded vehicle for people interested in getting diversified exposure to the, the space industry, um, having also drank in the ETF Kool-Aid and thinking that the ETF is a really interesting wrapper in the way that it opens up investment opportunities for both retail and institutional investors. Um, we finally kind of approached this time period when space was um, you know, really an investable industry with enough companies from around the world, large enough market caps, and, and true uh, diversification and d- differentiation across what these different companies do, that it seemed like the time was um, overdue for uh, a space ETF. And we were thrilled to, to launch UFO a little bit over a year ago. I, I couldn't agree more. And you did kind of mention what an ETF was there as a, as a wrapper. But for our listeners who may know what an ETF is, but not know what an ETF is, what is an ETF and what makes it different than, say, a mutual fund? An ETF can take many different forms. In the, the earliest days, um, they were very similar to the exposures that they'd offer you like a mutual fund, except unlike a mutual fund, ETFs have intraday liquidity, meaning that they're actually listed on an exchange. And you can even buy and possibly sell your ETF um, you know, almost instantaneously. Whereas with a mutual fund, you can only put in your purchase and sell orders once a day, and that uh, that trade happens at the at the actual closing price. So ETFs created this uh, way for investors to get um, all different types of exposure, and it all depends on the fund. 
um, at, a, at a relatively uh, potentially low cost and potentially tax efficient vehicle. So in my mind, they've always kind of been to me, uh, mutual fund 2.0s and ETFCO in their early days were kind of uh, mimicking exposures that you could get to, to broad-based index funds. And then they started getting even more interesting, getting into different asset classes like fixed income and commodities. And it really allowed retail investors to get exposure to asset classes that institutional investors and money managers were um, pretty much only uh, – the only players able to get those exposures. And so it's kind of democratized how investors can get exposures to all different types of funds, uh, asset classes based on you know, ge geographical locations and whatnot. So a really interesting and growing um, uh, vehicle and one that we're seeing start to spread all around the world with trillions of dollars invested into ETFs, both domestically and globally. And and you and your company have a great history in launching these ETFs, especially those with catchy names like your cybersecurity ETF hack. Um, but surely these ETFs are more than just fun names. So tell us about UFO. What is it? What makes it unique? And, and what's its methodology? So UFO is an ETF listed on the NASDAQ. It was launched back in uh, April of 2019. It's a fund that currently holds roughly 29 publicly traded companies from around the world, specializing in all different areas of the space economy. Uh, it's also um, a pure play ETF, meaning that at least 80% of the fund, its holdings are um, deriving at least 50% or more of their revenues from space-related activities or businesses. So people that want to get exposure to space can buy one share of UFO and essentially you're getting exposure to over or you're getting exposure currently to 29 publicly traded companies from around the world doing all different types of things space related so um you know, the, the, the current types of companies that you could be getting in are uh, companies that are in the communication services, industrials, information technology, consumer discretionary, discretionary materials. But um, one of the important things is, is a lot of kind of space activities that people are familiar with um, come from you know, uh, aerospace and defense companies. But to us, it was very important to kind of come out with a pure play um, weighted fund so you still do get exposure to some of the diversified aerospace and defense players that are very large players in the space industry but because they are so diversified and receive in many cases less than 50 percent of their revenues from space they actually fall into this 20 percent or less tranche that is um allows for these more diversified companies into it so um, you're predominantly you're getting these pure play names, but you also do get some um, diversified exposure to these diversified aerospace and defense companies. I like that clarification because I know when I think about space investing, both as a retail investor and as, as somebody who has, you know, researched the area. I mean, I had this preconceived notion that it's all defense and material companies. That there's really no, um, you said pure play. I mean, that's a good word, right? There's really no pure play space companies. So it's great to know that with UFO, you're getting more than just, um, you know, there might be some defense, obviously, that's a, that's a big part of the industry right now, but you're getting more than just what people might have as a preconceived notion for space plays. Yeah. And you know, I think that was very important because you know I've seen it time and time again, where someone will uh, just launch a new ETF with, you know, a catchy name or, you know, on a, on a catchy theme, 
But when you actually look at the holdings, you're not getting what you'd expect. And you might be in a company that you know is active in a certain industry, but you know it makes up one percent of their revenues. So at the end of the day, you're saying, you know, why am I allocating um, to this fund to get this theme when I'm really not getting that exposure I was hoping for? Um, and at the same time, you know, we wanted to create something that was different. So you know, if, if we completely overweighted this fund with companies that are in the aerospace and defense industry, someone would say, you know, why don't I just invest in an aerospace and defense fund? So we didn't want to create an aerospace and defense fund. We wanted to create something truly unique and different, providing new exposures for investors that, that actually do want to invest in the space industry. So that, that was something that was really important. And you kind of asked you know, how, how this is you know, different than other things that are out there. You know, this was an idea I had been interested in for a while, but we actually were approached by a former director of the Space Foundation who had actually been building out a, a space-related index for several years as a project over there, and then was actually given the opportunity to go on his own. He then partnered with um, a, another company that was uh, a specialist in creating thematic indexes uh, predominantly used for exchange-traded funds and helped provide some of the expertise on, okay, what you need to do to an index to make it actually um, you know, licensable for an ETF to track. And so when we actually met um, Micah, the, the former, uh, a former director of the Space Foundation, and got to kick the tires on the index and, and work on a whole bunch of stuff to really make it ready for um, you know, an ETF, we felt that we had the confidence of working with an expert and someone that truly understood the industry. And we gained a lot of confidence from him and his ability to, to educate and to, to back up you know, different reasons for why certain names were included and others were excluded. So for us, that was a real um, differentiator. The index actually, um, s since the fund had launched, has actually received um, from the Space Foundation uh, uh, a, a, a recognition, a designation as being the world's first certified space data product. So we are really excited to be the first ETF to, to license an index that has uh, received that designation. I, I love that. And it certainly is an exciting long-term opportunity. And I'm sure you get this question constantly, so I apologize for asking it. Uh, but it is an important question. I mean, why should the average investor be about the be excited about the opportunity to invest in space right now? Space has been an industry for many years. However, it has changed dramatically from the early days of the space program. In the early days of the space program, it was almost like a vanity project, you know. It was okay. Who, which country can do X, Y, or Z first? And it was you know, send someone into space and orbit the Earth and land someone on the moon. And it was tough to see how much benefit we we got from that. However, since those times, space has opened for business, and where governments and government agencies such as NASA and the likes represented almost 100% of the spending on the space industry back in the early days, they now represent closer to only 20%. So there's this interesting you know, support still from governments, government agencies, but the commercialization of space has transformed the industry completely. So we're looking at very different times, uh, different space policy has allowed for new entrants. And just uh, you know, a year or so ago, um, NASA came out with a with a big announcement uh, and an event at the NASDAQ saying that the International Space Station is now open for business. And I think what that really symbolized was NASA showing the public that NASA doesn't need to be the creator, the owner, the operator, developer of every single technology. NASA has its goals and its missions, 
And now they're extremely happy to partner with third parties, private and public companies that can actually build out the technologies that they need in order for them to achieve their goals. And seeing kind of that collab, uh, collaboration and camaraderie around the space industry has made this one of the, the, in my mind, one of the most importantly collaborative industries around the world. And these government agencies that have these ambitious goals are showing, hey, we're here, we have money and we are, you know, you know, at the plate, ready to partner with other companies that could help us achieve our goals. I think that was a big change. But then, you know, beyond just policy and government spendings and initiatives, we're also seeing technological breakthroughs. So two things that come to mind are first, reusable rockets. So if you can envision, you know, flying in a plane from the US to the UK and then landing and then just just scrapping the plane when you're done with it. And then when you return, having to build a new plane and come right back, that is basically what the space industry had done for decades. So now with reusable rockets, these rockets can, you know, uh, accomplish a mission and then be you know, refurbished and sent right back up into space to, to go about it again, as opposed to starting from scratch each time. So there's more speed as well as cost savings. And so that's one factor. And then another factor is uh, increased technology from satellites and what their capabilities are. So satellites are now smaller, they're lighter, sensors are stronger, the technologies and components can make them last longer. So now you can actually send things into space and it's typically priced based on weight. So now if you could send more powerful satellites into into orbit that are um, longer lasting and lighter weight, it lowers your barriers to entry significantly. So these are two major technological changes that we're seeing that's kind of enabling um, the growth of the space industry. But then also, you know, space has so much um, varying interpretations for what space is. Like you said, originally, you thought that maybe this would be heavily materials and aerospace and defense. But most people don't realize space actually affects our everyday lives already. So if you use you know, Uber, Uber is using GPS technology. So GPS technology is a space-based system and service. So you know, different things like GPS, how um, you know, clocks work for uh, financial markets and timing. There's so many different aspects that affect our everyday lives, even if you don't necessarily realize it. And there are these major... Um, transformational technologies that are being developed that we're using on Earth that are actually um, being powered by space technologies as well. So a couple of these are um, cloud computing, Internet of Things and connected devices, blockchain, even 5G. And what we're noticing is each of these industries are essentially um, you know, reliant and um, enabled by the creation of immense amounts of data. And that data is either created or it's being processed for those technologies. Or, But in all cases, it's being sent from point A to point B. And so if people believe that we're on the verge of a major breakout in the amount of data that the world is going to be revolving around and that that data needs to be sent from A to B, one of the missing links in the in this is space. So if, if all that data is going to be created and be sent, satellites will very likely be part of that chain. So we're viewing space as this uh, digital toll operator for the digital data superhighway. Wow, those are some very real and, and very exciting tailwinds. Um, when you think about the industry, do you see anything acting as a headwind, maybe, maybe concerns that you have or anything that's working against the industry right now? Yeah, you know, look, looking at volatility of general markets, um, you know, although 
you know, UFO might not be um, extremely correlated specifically with any one other index out there. Um, you know, when you see major changes um, going on in volatility, you know, you know, sometimes the baby's thrown out with the bathwater and, you know, things do become more correlated. Um, that said, what we've been really uh, impressed by is how governments have actually continued to push forward on their various space initiatives. So where some might say, okay, well, now the coronavirus is something that's distracting people. We're going to have to take some of that budget away and some of that spending away and put our goals and initiatives on the back burner until we figure out you know, how to cure coronavirus. We're actually seeing the opposite. We're seeing government saying, no, we're still going full speed ahead. Maybe we have to uh, delay a launch or two, but they're still moving forward. And that's happening on both the military and defense side, um, as well as you know, um, you know, agencies like NASA moving forward with their projects. So the spending um, and government support is actually still there. And then you look at things like Space Force. Well, you know, just because there's a virus going on doesn't mean that you can let down your guard. And we've noticed um, since um, you know, coronavirus has stricken you know, the U.S. as well as the world, um, we've actually pushed forward with the Space Force. And we have now been um, building uh, and deploying satellite uh, jamming defense capabilities for the Space Force. And we also saw just a couple of weeks ago, uh, President Trump announced a new space order, which is actually giving the allowance for U.S. companies um, and civilians to actually find ways of extracting resources from outer space, be it the moon, asteroids, or beyond. So we might not necessarily be at the point yet to capitalize on resource extraction. However, it shows how this is still a very front of mind topic for those leaders around the world. And the U.S. doesn't operate in a vacuum. Typically, when the U.S. military is doing something, countries like China, and Russia and others say, you know what, we need to stay competitive as well. And it also causes them to increase their spending on these different defense areas. And now that the Space Force has actually become um, a new frontier for the U.S. military, that's something that may also trigger foreign um, uh, governments, both allies and adversaries, to increase what they're doing to build out their space-related infrastructure and capabilities. Is there any real timeline for these development, though? I mean, you presume that these would be long-term initiatives that would take upwards of, of decades to really see the impact. So what makes, what makes UFO an exciting opportunity today versus five years from now? Well, if you just look at the, the holdings um, currently in the portfolio, a lot of these companies are already cash flow positive companies today. So you know, how space is currently affecting us today and how we're utilizing space um, it predominantly comes from the communication side. So, um, you know, we're having this conversation right now and very likely satellites are helping in this process of this podcast, actually being able to, um, you know, record this podcast now, as well as for it to be disseminated to the many, many listeners around the world that, that tune into your podcast. So, um, your communications are still very important with work from home and things like that. Um, it, it's putting different stresses on broadband. Um, you know, if businesses completely, you know, continue to slow down and there are layoffs and things like that, you know, there could be, um, you know, more broadband capacity, which, you know, could impact revenues. Um, but, you know, many of these companies are already big players that are, that are generating, uh, you know, revenues as we speak. So, um, I think the things, a lot of the things that people get very excited about 
are these, you know, very far off um, ideas like, you know, colonizing Mars and, um, you know, going beyond our solar system. Um, There are, those are ambitious goals and they are being, um, you know, technologies are being worked on today to help us achieve those. But there are many, you know, closer near-term goals, like even building, you know, permanent colonies on the moon is probably a lot closer than we imagine. And some of the technologies that we develop there might actually be things that we're able to bring back here um, and implement on Earth. And just one of those ideas is kind of, you know, agriculture. So, um, you know, you go to these very remote um, places where you don't have infrastructure, you don't have the typical resources that you need. But if you're trying to build a permanent colony there, you're going to need to figure out how to feed um, you know, the, those populations. And if we could figure out how to you know, grow plants on the moon and you know, feed colonies and, and people there, you know, there's a good chance that we're able to you know, use those same technologies and go to remote places on our planet and help feed those where, you know, typically they may have been, you know, un- unable to produce, um, you know, agriculture. So I think there's a lot of things that are already happening today. There are things that are being worked on specifically for space, um, uh, space-based related missions that we'll actually be able to take back onto Earth and use it um, back here as well. So, um, you know, I-, I think that an ETF um, being that, you know, it, it may be a longer term theme because you know we're just scratching the surface on what this industry you know could potentially look like in the future. Being in an ETF gives people the diversification to have the exposure to many different companies specializing in different areas, and it's not just a you know you buy it today and all the holdings are the same and it stays that way forever and hopefully they all work out. Um, the index provider is constantly looking at the universe of space companies. Um, you know, just uh, uh, at, towards the end of last year, Virgin Galactic became available for investors to get exposure to. And that was a company that um, it was private, just not much, uh, you know, just, just a year ago. So you look at things like that, and that company is now one of the larger holdings in UFO. Uh, you know, as other companies become public, or they spin off their non-space assets, or they purchase more space assets. These are all things that could be considered for this fund. So it's a it's a living, breathing fund that um, you know people can can buy when they're ready to buy it. And um, you know it's constantly every every quarter it's rebalancing, every six months it's reconstituting. So there are opportunities for people to get exposure to the space industry today by investing in the fund. But also as the industry itself changes and evolves, um, there's also the potential for new companies to be added to the fund. I'm so happy that you mentioned Virgin Galactic because I think if we didn't talk about it, I'd have countless emails in my <laughs> inbox afterwards. I, I have to admit, uh, Virgin Galactic is my guilty pleasure stock. I, I bought myself some a couple months ago. Uh, while there's very little fundamentals, it, it is the only publicly traded space tourism play really in the market right now. So I, I do have one last question for you, which kind of relates it back to why we're talking about this for t- today's consumer goods focused episode. Um, really consumer discretionary, to be more broad. Um, how do you think about the opportunities and space for consumers? And, and how do you think about it in terms of playing upon long-term consumer discretionary demand? F- phenomenal question. And, and you know, there are so many um, you know, ways that the space industry can go and can grow in the future. You mentioned Virgin Galactic, which is um, you know, the first pure play space tourism company. And I think that's you know just really kind of opening people's eyes to how space could become more attainable for you know for, for people on this planet. 
And, um, you know, I, I, you know, if they can get the technologies right and they can, you know, continue not far off from, from their timelines of first sending Sir Richard Branson into space and then, you know, many customers from around the world, um, you know, it, it's, you, you talk to astronauts and one of the things that they always say is, you know, um, going up into outer space and looking back at our, at our tiny blue planet. Um, completely changes their perspective on things and reminds them of how small the world really is and how you know, we must treat our planet right. And you know, the more people that we can send into outer space to get this perspective um, makes you wonder um, you know, how, how we might change as a civilization on Earth. The more people that see it, um, you know, especially these first people that are, are going to be going or scheduled to go on the Virgin Galactic flights, these are some of the, the wealthiest people on the planet, and they have the ability to put their money to work um, to, to do different things that they believe in. And so I think you know, some of these first people to go up there could be, you know, maybe are already innovators in the space industry, but could come up with entire new ways of how to develop products and also how to, to make us work better together as a planet, as a planet, as a, you know, only having you know, the Earth as our only option at the moment. Um, you know, maybe it's a, another thing like we look at, you know, coronavirus and, you know, geopolitical tensions, um, as well as, you know, pollution and environmental concerns. And all these things are things that are being discussed um, by the space community today. So, you know, hopefully we can create a, a cleaner planet for, for everyone and that will affect how we all live. Um, but, you know, when it comes down to individual products and things like that, you know, um, you know kind of we mentioned agriculture. Um, and that's, you know, we might be creating things for the use in space, but in many times we're actually creating things that are then actually usable on Earth. So um, healthcare is another one of these industries that's looking to space to help do R&D for, for new drugs and treatments. Um, you know, I, it, it would be very unlikely that, you know, the current population on this Earth that even, you know, 5% have the opportunity to go into outer space in our lifetimes. But that could be a, a big change going forward. And so I think um, you know, the amount of products that can be developed that are space related that then come to affect us um, you know, typically has been cost prohibitive, especially on the R&D front. However, with these different technological trends occurring that are making space more accessible and more affordable, it can allow more companies to actually create more products. So I don't know if we'll see 20 Virgin Galactics. Um, maybe you know, we only need two space tourism companies in the near future. But different types of products um, that are uh, either purely from technologies developed from different space trials, um, you know, I, I, I would be shocked if we're if we don't receive more usable technologies on this planet. Um, it seems like a lot of them come tech, you know, are techno technologically driven, like things like um, you know Uber and Google Maps, um, and we're also seeing a bunch of imagery from satellites as well that hedge funds are using. Um, but I think space will affect us um, continuously from uh, ways that we don't see and don't understand. But I think that because um, the costs of getting to space are significantly lower that we could see a whole new wave of consumer products. Right now, it's mainly um, stuff that's being delivered to us from one place on Earth to a satellite and then back down to us. Um, so that that might change where we start to see more physical products. But right now, communications has been a very big driver and uh, on the broadband Internet space as well. That seems to be um, an area of strong demand.
Well, I'll tell you what, Andrew, that's not only a lot of information to take in, and I, I tell you what, it makes me excited about the entire, I call it the global space economy, because I don't want to call it just space, because to your point, I think that there's so much more to this industry than what people may think. I, I really appreciate you taking your time and walking us through both how you view space and investing in it, as well as UFO. Well, thank you, and I'm happy to come back on at any time you'd like to talk about space again in the future. I'm sure we will. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to say hey, you can always shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the screen today. For Andrew Channon, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.